Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Welcome back to the Bridging Chicago podcast. If you haven't listened to part one of our conversation with Brendan Kernan, professional development coach, then I suggest that you go back and listen to that episode that is uh, uploaded on www.bridgingchicago.com or wherever you found this podcast. But I would definitely encourage you to listen to that one. Um, And we'll continue now our conversation with Brendan. And uh, you mentioned to us at the end of the part one episode about your marathon running. And so I want to make sure that we get uh, to talk about that because you have, uh, I, I saw in your bio, you ran your first, you completed your first and your hundredth marathon, which I can't even believe that's a sentence in Chicago. <laughs> but tell me about the actual first marathon attempt and sort of what made you want to do that and then how that first one went for you. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I was in the throes of a lot of very busy work life at my law firm, but the marathon was a goal that I had for several years just to see if I could accomplish that. My, the longest run I did in training for that was a 10 K run a week and a half before the marathon, or a week before the marathon. And by the way, that's 6.2 miles. So I had the last 6.2 miles covered in training. I just didn't have the first 20 miles covered. And um, at the starting line, I met a friend of mine, a client who had moved down to Florida that I hadn't seen in two years. And we wound up next to each other in the starting corral. And by the way, in 1985, the the race started in downtown Chicago, partly on Dearborn, partly on Clark, on either side of um, where the uh, 69 West Washington County building is and the temple. And we ran north. The course is reversed the way it is now. Um, but my friend and I met, uh, didn't know each other, was running the marathon. We ran together for 20 miles. And at that point, I was exhausted. The end of that race came up from Irving Park 
to Fullerton on Lakeshore Drive. And in the course of that, that uh, few miles, I uh, was passed by a woman who was 80 years old. And I was then passed by a woman who was seven and a half months pregnant. Now, this was 1985 when women uh, weren't running very much. In fact, 1984 was the first year of an Olympic marathon for women. So this was a year after that. And that 84 was when Joan Benoit, uh, at that time, Joan Benoit uh, won the, the first Olympic marathon for women in Los Angeles. Um, so women weren't running very much. And the fact that an 80-year-old passed me, 80-year-olds weren't running very much either at that time. Uh, and I had no energy to get either one of them, and I could not move for more than a week. Uh, I was just so physically exhausted and sore. Um, but I wanted to do it as a, a part of grit and determination, that I felt that no matter how much I was struggling, I could get through it. And I gritted my way through it. And I finished in about four hours, 50 minutes, which made me one of the last participants to finish the race at that time. Now, things have changed because that year I also registered for the race uh, on race weekend at the Expo, uh, unlike what you can do for Chicago Marathon today. Um, so it was memorable for those experiences. And the next two years I ran, again, with very little training because I was so caught up in, uh, in work and working so much that I thought I could still get my way through it and still improve my time. Youthful indiscretion is a good term for it. Um, arrogance might be another thing to do. But I also got positive reinforcement by the fact that I could do it. Um, after that, I wound up uh, living in Arizona and getting divorced. And when I moved back to Chicago, I thought I'd take another crack at the marathon. And so in 1995, I trained from April through the marathon, improved my, my personal best by that time by over an hour and a half, qualified for the Boston Marathon, for the 100th running of the Boston Marathon, and was hooked on uh, endurance running and long-distance running. I found it as an escape. And of course, by that time I was sober, so I had a completely different perspective on what it took to run a marathon or even plan to run a marathon. And um, the rewards are exhilarating. I learned a lot about myself, my discipline, time management skills. And I think I was still as productive at work, but often in a shorter period of time because I set goals for myself at the end of the day to go out and train and set goals on the weekends to go out and train. So I would block time off and I learned what are some of my core values? What do I find important to me, both from a goal setting standpoint and a time management standpoint? And um, I've gone on to run a marathon in each of the 50 states, all six of the world marathon majors around the world, Tokyo, Berlin, London, New York, Boston, and Chicago. Um, I run on all seven continents, even Antarctica. And uh, interestingly, this kind of falls into the more is never enough category that uh, why don't you stop it? Why don't you stop when you qualified for Boston? Why don't you stop when you ran Boston? Um, what, what's the other goal? And um, it seemed like for a long period of time, I always had to have another goal. I, I wasn't able to really uh, savor the moment. Um, in fact, when I, when I finished the 50 states, which was 2008, I was finally at a point where when people would congratulate me on finishing all 50 states, what's next? And I would sometimes tell them what I thought was next, which was the seven continents, but there was something else out there. And then shortly after that, I decided 
I've been practicing mindfulness techniques for a long time. Since I got sober, it was just a form of meditation and mindfulness techniques. But I had a transition at this point, somewhere around 2008-2010, that maybe it's time to savor the accomplishment. Rather than say at 40 states, I'm going to do 50 states, or at 50 states, I'm going to do the seven continents, or at seven continents, I'm going to do the world majors. Um, when is enough? When can I just you know, follow that, that recipe of rest and recovery? That if it's an important part of my training cycle and how I coach runners, why doesn't that apply to me? Why can't I just take a moment, be in the moment, be happy with my accomplishment of whatever it is, and not plan ahead? Now, I can also have ultimate goals. I mean, I, I decided to go for 100 marathons because I was you know, fairly close. Um, but I had a gap. There was a gap there that I said, I'm deliberately going to take time off and I'm going to savor what I've accomplished right now. I'm going to dedicate some time to working more with my runners and trying to show them by example. We talked earlier uh, about my parents and what I, how I did things with them, and it was behavior patterns, that I changed in my behavior patterns rather than trying to talk with them about um, what we disagreed at. And this was an example of me to show my children, to show uh, my coworkers, to show my runners that you don't have to keep going, that sometimes less is more, that I can be satisfied with the goal I have at the moment. I can be satisfied with accomplishment, sitting in it, just relishing it before looking for the next carrot, before looking for the next medal, before looking for the next accomplishment. That sometimes a pause is both necessary and required. I was thinking earlier, and it's interesting that you, you kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, I was thinking earlier, I was just reflecting on some things, and I was thinking about this idea of like a one degree difference, how even a one degree difference is an accomplishment, right? It's like if you want to do something and you feel like I need to turn my life around 180 degrees, even doing a one degree difference is an accomplishment. And so for you and your example saying, mm -hmm. okay, I want to become a sober person, you know, one step in that recovery makes a difference. And so what would you say to people about how to, one, celebrate that success and then to build on that success? In uh, Because I think a lot of people do focus on it isn't successful until you've done it, until you've you know accomplished it 100%. Um, what would you say about you know celebrating the small victories along the way? Mm -hmm. What I've learned through my mindfulness practice and what I've learned about my reflection on things is that the other part of that, the idea of being goal-driven, that you're after the next goal to be the best, the most accomplished, whatever the it is, can never be satisfied. There's always going to be somebody who's stronger, faster, better looking, taller, what, whatever it is that I am. And even, you know, it's, it's also like the story that who do you think would win a fight between Mike Tyson and, and uh, Muhammad Ali? Well, obviously Mike Tyson would because by the time Mike Tyson came along, Muhammad Ali was 65 years old something like that. So, you know, it's an unfair comparison, but people would, would still try to make those comparisons. 
And the idea for reflection is to what is it that I can accomplish or need to accomplish and who am I trying to prove it to? Am I trying to prove it to myself or am I trying to prove it to somebody else? Um, one of the comments that I share with runners, and this gets to the to two questions I mentioned in the earlier edition about what are your motives and what are you afraid of? Um, there's a corollary to that for marathon runners and people who, uh, who get involved in things that take a lot of time. And the question is, are you running to something or are you running from something? Which is it? Are you running from or to? And that's really a GPS moment for me. And I, I refer to this in working with clients that every starting point has a GPS. If, if, we, if we say we want to be here, I want to go to New York. Um, so I can plug in on Google Maps, best way to get to New York. But if I don't know where I'm starting from, I don't know which route to take. And so I have to understand where I am right now, my starting point for this GPS. And typically, there'll be six or seven routes that are available. You know, it's the quickest, the shortest, with toll roads, without toll roads, under construction, um, a number of things. So which one do I choose? And am I going to be happy with the choice that I make? And happiness comes from knowing that I'm following a course that I chose, whether it's the easiest or the most difficult or somewhere in between. Uh, my GPS moment has to start with, where am I right now? Am I running to New York or am I running from Chicago? And what does that mean in my approach? And what does that mean when I finally get to New York? What awaits for me in New York? Um, so that's, that's kind of how I'm looking at all of this and some of the transitions that I've made over time. And in that time, how do the people around you come alongside you and help build you up? But also, how do you sort of parent? How do you be a friend? How do you be a coworker during this time? I've gone through an exercise where I try to identify my core values. And as part of that, I make a list and I ask myself from the perspective of my family and friends, my close circle, how do they see me? How do they see me in a number of experiences? And so I, I kind of write down what I think in that environment. Then a day or so later, I'll come back and I'll say, in a work environment, how do my coworkers see me? How do my clients see me? And ask the same set of questions. And then I'll go back and I compare. And if there are differences, then I know that there is a divergence between who I think I am and who I'm trying to be. Um, and then I have to decide which do I want to be, which is the real me. So in that core value examination, am I really friendly? Am I stoic? Am I aggressive? Am I a pushover? And when I look at how these things can diverge in different ways, which one is the really true me? When is the time to set boundaries? When is the time to be aggressive? Um, you know, when is the time? How do I know which one feels right without having regrets or having to make amends to uh, somebody for doing something? Uh, for a long period of my life, my uh, attitude was really ready, fire, aim. If you said something to me that hurt me, I would lash out. 
And then I realized that sometimes the comments and actions that I take were preemptive resentments. I expected or anticipated that you, and I don't mean to keep picking on you. I'm sorry when I use you as a, as a reference here, um, but I'm looking at you. So you're, yeah. you're kind of my object right now. But, you know, whoever the you is, um, I would expect you to do something to either hurt me or betray me. So I'm preemptively going to act in a way that uh, protects me instead of letting it evolve. Um, and if I let things evolve, it's amazing to me how things change. Um, one story that, that always comes to mind when this topic comes up, my, son was, my younger son was visiting me out in Arizona. And when they came out to visit me, they always had chores around the house. And his chore was to set the dinner table. Every night he had to set the dinner table. And he would continually put salad forks on the table, even when we weren't having salad. And I'd say, what are you doing? That's not the right fork. Here's the way you set the table. And okay, so after a couple of times, it still wasn't being done. And towards the end of the week, I said, now, come on, how many times do I have to tell you, use this fork? Why are you doing it this way? And with all the innocence of a 12-year-old kid, he said, the salad forks fit my hand better. I didn't know how to respond. I was enormously filled with guilt and shame, old behaviors from when I was growing up. But... Why wasn't I willing to listen to him earlier? And what difference did it make whether you use the salad forks or the dinner forks from my perspective? That's not going to make a difference in his life, whether he used salad forks. And really, by the time he got to be 16 or 17, the regular forks were better suited for his hands, so he used those more. But without that anticipation of, of even questioning, why are you doing it this way, and listening to him, rather than trying to dictate that this is the way it has to be, um, I had to take a different look at myself. What are my true values here? What am I trying to teach him? And am I teaching him by example? Am I teaching him um, by uh, talking with him, yelling at him, uh, punishing him somehow? Um, so that was an, an instrumental moment in my life when I finally realized that, that um, there are different ways to do things and people that I'm involved with typically have a good reason for doing that. When I can reflect on that, um, I sometimes have to pause and try to understand. You know, I think that's the, the main element of empathy and compassion. Can I give you the right to be wrong? And if I give you the right to be wrong, are you wrong generally, or are you wrong because you're different than me in any element of life? Um, and I try to live by that. Not always successfully, uh, and I mean, God knows there have been many times when I've gone completely contrary to that. But I try to reflect upon that, and I try to keep that foremost in my mind, that um, I can either let my arrogance show or my, uh, my feeling of self-satisfaction grow, or I can pause and allow the space to be filled with somebody else. Let's talk about Antarctica, because I would never run a marathon there. So I should tell you, I've run three of the Chicago marathons. I have yet to train for any of them, because I'm the kind of person where I think about training, and I'm like, I will never run a single marathon if I have to train for the whole thing. But if I can just go out and run it and be done with it, I'm good to go. 
I would never suggest anyone do that, by the way. But it's just kind of how, how I am. And so, like, I've run the, the three of them here in Chicago, and it's a city I know well, you know, so I feel comfortable with that. I, I never would imagine doing one in, in Antarctica. And I believe it was 2013 when you completed your marathon there. But uh, let's talk about what it was like there. And um, I know there were multiple attempts at that. So like, how did you decide to do Antarctica and then sort of sh share with us what that was like? The goal for running Antarctica became mm -hmm. that next thing. When I finished the 50 states, what's next? The next logical step was all seven continents. By that time, the world marathon majors were not in the picture. So the idea of running the seven continents was the next big major goal. And um, in 2007, and by the way, there's a wait list to get on. So you don't just, it's not like that first marathon in Chicago where I signed up on race weekend. You've got to apply to get on the trip a year and a half or two years in advance, even longer right now because of some of the delays in recent years. So um, I decided I wanted to run an article because it would be a cool thing, an adventure. And I, I do like adventurous trips. And I was probably in the best shape of my life at that time in training for Antarctica. And part of the course, it was a two-loop course, including running about a mile and a half up a glacier and back down the glacier twice. And uh, I passed by the half marathon mark, saw my friends at the halfway mark, and everything was glorious. Uh, got to mile 18, and I thought I was going to sit down for a minute. And I sat on a rock. The next thing I knew, I looked at my sleeve, and there was about two inches of snow on my sleeve. And next to me was a guy on an ATV who was part of the race uh, security patrol asking me how I was feeling. Now, that was one time where I didn't look at him and say, I'm fine. I looked at him and I said, I don't know, but I think I can finish the race. And he looked at me and he said, he knew me, and he said, what would you tell one of your runners in this situation? And I put my head down and the sense of failure came over. The first sense was one of failure. But I hopped on the ATV. He took me to the Russian infirmary at the Bellingshausen Russian Science Station where the race started and finished. And I was treated for hypothermia. Um, I realized after that that I could have died. In 2013, I went back on the boat uh, to go to Antarctica. And I told almost nobody on the boat that I'd been there before or why I was coming back. In between those six years, I had come to terms with the fact that if I never ran Antarctica, if I never got the seven continents, I would be fine with that. But the opportunity came up, and I was able to go back again. And um, I completed the race that year. Uh, there was no glacier. We had three loops instead of two. And I got to mile 18. As I'm approaching mile 18, I had these flashbacks to six years before. And can I do this? What's going to happen? And so I use the trick that I tell my runners, that there comes a point where you're going to feel exhausted or mentally challenged. And my initial reaction is to deny it, to say, I can power through this. 
what I've learned is it's better to acknowledge it and validate it by saying, yeah, I'm worried about mile 18. I'm scared that I'm not going to get past mile 18. But I'm going to take that fear. I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'm going to concentrate on what I'm doing. And we'll talk about this when I get to the finish line. And I finished the race. But more important, that was a very difficult year. And there were a dozen or more people who did not finish the race that year. Now, we're talking about a universe of about 100 runners who are in this race. And a dozen or so did not finish because of the race conditions. And <clears throat> one friend who knew that I was coming back and what happened the first time told one of these runners that it was my second time and I was coming back after having, quote, failed, unquote, the first time. And this guy came up to me and he said, how did you do it? This, this, is, this was my 57th marathon. I've run all 50 states. I've run six continents. This was going to be 57 and done. And I failed. And I knew at that moment that part of the reason that I was able to go back there and complete the race and face my demons was to help him. And what I was able to share with him was my reflection on the night of the race in 2007 and the next morning. And as everybody was just having a really good time in the party room of the boat, I was off in a corner, slinking off to the side, feeling ashamed that I let everybody in the world down. And the next morning, the sun came up, my kids still love me, and I had a world to go back to. And I realized at that point that there are worse things in life than DNF, a do not finish or did not finish. And that took on a different reflection because it wasn't just that one guy, but he told some of the other folks. And almost every one of those 12 people who in 2013 did not finish the race asked me how I handled it the first time and what was different this time from then. And that was really the meaning for me going back. Um, yeah, it was a nice accomplishment, but I could share some of my experience, strength, and hope that life doesn't end if you don't finish the marathon, that the sun will still come up the next day, your kids will still love you, and life will go on. And you can deal with this as long as you allow yourself the grace and the self-love to do that. And in the current world that we live in, um, one of the things that I've had to constantly remind myself is that, you know, life does go on and that even when it changes, that it doesn't mean that it can't still be fulfilling. Um, and so has that helped you in this last year that's been very different than any other year? Um, has that helped you to kind of keep that perspective or has, how has your training and your life and your work, how has that helped you to get uh, through this year and to adapt in the ways that, you know, we've all had to do it. You know, we used to do these podcasts face to face where, you know, you come to the studio and we'd be sitting next to each other and we'd be, talking and now we're doing them by video, which is great that we can do that. Um, but, you know, obviously you miss out on the face to face. So, you know, we've all adapted in different ways, but how have you kind of taken that as fuel to continue to do what you do and thrive and doing that with helping people, um, you know, while maintaining all of these standards of safety? Mm -hmm.
it's a recognition of where we are and what we have to accept. Um, and that changes on a daily basis. I mean, my perception of the world around me changes on a daily basis. When I ran the marathon in China, on the Great Wall of China, on the way back up over the wall for the second and last time, there was a friend of mine who came up alongside of me and he said, you know, this isn't the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's the hardest thing I've done in a long time. And I think with each one of us, what we're going through at the moment seems the easiest or the hardest, depending on whether it's something that we see as positive or negative, because we're in the moment. It's what's surrounding us at this time. But if we reflect back, there's probably been more challenging times in our lives and easier times in our lives. And in the future, there will be more difficult times and easier times. Uh, so we have to keep that perspective. And in the last year, it's learning a new way of coping um, through Zoom calls like we're doing now for this interview instead of interpersonal. Um, it's also time to reflect back on what is really meaningful to me. And that's a question I ask of each one of the people that I work with. What is really meaningful to you and how can we change it? And if you perceive of something that's negative around you, whether it's your relationship or your job or lack of a job because you were let go, how are you going to approach this? How are you going to think about what needs to be done? So you can either remain a victim to it. If, you, if you're really feeling negative about it and you're feeling, poor me, how is anybody ever going to love me again or what have you, um, you can either stay a victim to it. You can change it by moving to a new position. You can change your perspective of it. You can accept the way that it is and have a different philosophy, or you can leave. Those are the only five choices you have. If somebody wants to evolve but look back and say, how can I, how can I adapt? Which of those five elements is rising to the top that I have to follow? And do I have the courage to do that? Do I have the ability to say within myself, to trust myself, to trust the process of who I am today, that I can get through this, no matter how difficult it is that I can do this if I reflect back on myself and I have that GPS moment as to where I am right now and where I want to move forward to. Can you tell me something when you start working with maybe new clients or you're working with people that you coach, something that you tell them that surprises them that they wouldn't you know, I, I'm assuming when people come into this, they have an idea of what they want to do. Maybe they want to get stronger. They want to get faster. They want to get more endurance, whatever it is that they want. Um, is there something that you tell them that's important in that training that surprises them? That's maybe they say, oh, I didn't think this would be a part of, you know, endurance training or strength training or whatever it may be. In the running world, in the marathon coaching world, and there are corollaries in this in everyday life, whether it's a job situation, relationship situation, or what have you. But the idea of less is more. You know, and if, if you think about graphing out um, a, a timeline, when you're learning a new skill, you're really at a baseline level, and then you have the skyrocketing effect, and then you plateau. And that's the normal course of things. When you're starting from basically zero, you're going to bounce along and all of a sudden things get the routine gets good and you, you shoot up to a level but then you level off 
I tell people that it's easier to knock an hour and a half off your marathon time than it is to knock off two minutes, which is true. When you get to a certain point, it's going to be very difficult to get those other two minutes lower than what you ran before. Um, and expect those challenges to expect the unexpected to impact your life. And sometimes the importance is to take a step back because I've had a lot of runners in particular who at the first signs of injury, when their performance is plateauing, they want to run more. And they think I've got to run harder and faster and add more miles and add more speed work. And I have the hill training and blah, 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 blah. And they're increasing their likelihood of injury. And I've had this happen where people, even in the last two weeks before trying to reach a goal like a Boston qualifier or a sub three hour marathon or whatever their goal happens to be, in some cases it's the person trying to break five hours. They don't want to take the time off to heal. They don't want to take the time off to reflect. And by pushing harder, they're overtraining and they'll wind up injury, maybe not even getting to the starting line. When I'm dealing with my clients, I say that whatever your goal is, you can't get to the finish line if you don't get to the starting line. So my goal is to help you get to the starting line healthy. I'd rather you be undertrained and healthy than overtrained and injured to the point where you can't run. That can be really difficult in our society to say, you want me to do less? What's wrong with you? And it's a leap that I had to take in my life many times that um, less is more. And if I'm willing to look long-term, odd analogy for a marathon training, but still, uh, but if I'm able to look in the long run, uh, it does work out and it's counterintuitive. But a lot of the, the coaching that I do, the professional development, the interior value seeking is counterintuitive. And um, it's okay to be different. It's okay not to want to be the highest biller or the one with the, the gross amount of money every year um, if you're not happy. And how do you really find happiness? How do you define happiness? Because oftentimes when people come to me looking for either a coaching element in running or in professional development, they're not happy with their situation. And they don't know how to build those 28 hours a day or go from X to Y in, in annual earnings. And really, why do you need to? I can't answer that. In, in the professional development world, I don't give advice. I don't answer. I don't tell you what to do. I help you identify things from within. And, you know, maybe to lawyers, it's kind of like the Socratic method when you're in law school, that you think you have the answer and the professor at the front of the class will change the fact pattern. So you never really know, but it, it, it's a similar thing that I can't give you the answers. The answers are within you. And I can help you by asking you questions. I can help you help yourself. And if you help me help you, then we have a better chance of reaching the goal. So let's close with your work with the Chicago Bar Association and the Well-Being and Mindfulness Committee because um, it is something that I think, mental health in general is something that I think has um, taken a big turn. The stigma is starting to go away. Um, more people are getting into counseling. 
And even in the legal field, more people are understanding that mental health is important and that you know well-being is important. And so in your work with the Chicago Bar Association, um, how have you seen uh, that change? And do you see more attorneys and young attorneys especially sort of consider their mental health and their uh, their lifestyle balances when they're um, you know still trying to be successful attorneys? I do. And I think it's, um, it's laudatory that the American Bar Association, the Chicago Bar Association, the state bar associations around the country are paying much more attention to lawyer well-being and mindfulness. And it's not even separate anymore of well-being, mindfulness, everything else. Uh, because the everything else used to include things like substance abuse, whatever your substance of choice is. Um, stress and the idea of well-being and mindfulness is that you will be more productive if you are calmer and understand where you're coming from on a daily basis. Um, the American Bar Association had a report that was done in 2017 that talked about how much more likely lawyers are than the general public to be workaholics to have substance abuse problems, and to be in failed relationships. And uh, by a high number, very high number, and even those who have trappings of success are often in one of those categories. Gratefully, bar associations are trying to have more programs that tell lawyers, particularly young lawyers, that um, you can do it. You, you can have good mental health without going over the deep end in work and things like that. I often look at um, some of older attorneys, people of my generation, and I think about it more like a hazing ritual in college or at a, a high school team that by the time you're a junior or senior, you've gone through the hazing or in a fraternity, you've gone through the hazing. So you want to pass that along to somebody else and well, if I did this, they can do that. And instead of that, um, there is an attitude shift that it is more allowing younger lawyers to realize that it's not healthy to bill 28 hours a day, seven days a week for years and years. That even if you make a gazillion dollars, you may not be around to spend it. Uh, that there are more important things in life. And even if you are available to spend it, you may not have anybody to share it with <laughs> because you become such a jerk in your life that nobody wants to be around you. Um, and the idea of programs like I've been able to share with the, with the CBA and others uh, and other webcasts are that there is a way out. And even if you take a hit financially or from an ego prestige standpoint for a couple of years, that can be rebuilt. Your health and your mental health often can't be if you let it go too far. And so that it's really important to take stock of what your core values are, what's important to you, and trust the process that will work out. Uh, a friend of mine kept telling me over and over again when I was struggling with things that, you know, it's always going to work out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end. Believing that when I'm in the throes of a, of a really thorny issue, uh, a relationship, like when I was going through my divorce process, when I went through a period of estrangement with my children, I didn't want to believe that 
And I was fortunate enough to have people in my life who guided me along the way and say, yeah, it will. Um, I can't give you the date. I can't give you the hour. I can't even give you the year. But if you follow this process, if you get sober and you continue to go through this process, life will get better. And likewise, in the lawyer well-being and mindfulness, if you pay attention and keep your eye on what your goal is, it will get better. It may not happen on the quick timetable that you want, but trust yourself and trust the process, and it'll get better. Well, if people haven't learned anything from this podcast, and I, maybe they were playing it backwards or something, because I have been so inspired, and, so, and I've just learned so much from this time with you, and uh, I really appreciate your uh your honesty and just being so vulnerable because I know it can be difficult for people to, you know, own up to the, the challenges and, you know, you want to celebrate the wins and it's sometimes you could kind of want to hide the challenges, but, um, but we really appreciate you being so open and, and sharing your story because I at least have certain, certainly got a lot from it and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. And so we're very appreciative of that. Um, Brendan, and thank you for giving us your time. And um, I want to leave people with uh, letting them know how to get a hold, of, get in contact with you if they want to connect with you. Can you share with us where we can find you out in the cyber world? At least, sure. I have a website on professional development and marathon coaching, and that is coachbrendan.com. Brendan is B-R-E-N-D-A-N, coachbrendan.com. And the best email to get me is coach at coachbrendan.com. And hopefully I'll hear from some of you as we trudge the road to happy destiny leading ahead. We'll see each other on the path. Nathan, thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. So Uh, We thank you. We thank our listeners. We're grateful for all of you. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode. And we look forward to to connecting with you on another one. Again, you can find Brendan at coachbrendan.com. And we'll make sure to link all of that in this podcast. So be sure to visit our website, uh, bridgingchicago.com, for this and all the episodes in our fourth season so far of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding. 